how do you take direct-to-consumer health and then target it to the geographies that will allow you to have payer reimbursement quickest? That's what we're talking about in Sam Talks Telehealth. Welcome to Sam Talks Telehealth, where we talk about anything related to virtual care. Today's episode, we're looking at a great article that Christina Farr wrote, and it was really looking at why investors are leaning into the direct-to-consumer health model and really looking around because you can't hide behind a bad product. So if we think about virtual care, we've got a lot of this lean into different ideas of how the ROI will work. So one would be, do I go direct to consumer? Do I contract with payers? Do I contract with hospitals and health systems? What's that gonna look like? And certainly through the years, we've seen this combination of startups leaning towards direct to consumer or contracting with payers. The challenge that we know right now is if you're to contract with a payer directly and you don't have any direct-to-consumer experience, that can, you know, the payers can be a little nervous. You're not proven. What are the health outcomes? What's this going to look like? And so if we take that one step further in terms of what our investors are looking for, they are starting to look at the direct-to-consumer products, startups, because there's nowhere nowhere for a bad product to hide. And I love that idea that Christine is talking about in terms of this nowhere for a bad product to hide. So let's talk for a second. What do we know about direct-to-consumer health? That is, that's out-of-pocket costs with the rise in high deductible plans. I believe, my personal opinion, that also relates to why we have that direct to consumer. Because if you think, for example, if you have out-of-pocket co-pays um, or out-of-pocket expense up to $5,000 a month, and you want to go direct to consumer to get something simple, that $100 visit, that $50 visit, that $200 visit could still actually cost you less than if you went into a physical location to get your services. So when we're thinking about virtual care, direct to consumer makes a lot of sense. We're also seeing the rise because of high deductible insurance plans. But I want to get back to this idea of if I'm going direct to consumer, I want to take it another level of how can I then choose a region, choose a place that's going to make the most sense for me later for my payer strategy. So in the article, Christina talks about that, you know, if you first are direct to consumer, you have a great product, you're really proving what you have, you can then go to payers who potentially are regional payers that then would contract with you based on your services. I want us to start looking at in a little bit um, another lens. And that lens is, if I have a direct-to-consumer product, a virtual first product, how do I then actually start my direct-to-consumer care in states that already have a virtual first friendly payer environment? And what do I mean that by that? So as some of you may know, I'm in Colorado and have spent uh, previous uh, eight years as telemedicine director at Colorado Health System. So worked in large health systems implementing programs. Through that time, I also worked on legislation to ensure in Colorado for private payers, so non-Medicare, but all other private payers that are governed by the Department of Insurance and Medicaid, that we have payment parity in Colorado for video visits. 
So when we think about the fee-for-service landscape, okay, there are specific CPT codes we know that allow us to get services. And in a lot of medicine, whether it's virtual first, in-person, those are our standard evaluation and management codes. If we actually think about a direct-to-consumer model, let's say you are a virtual first company and you're trying to decide right now, where should I open my direct-to-consumer model? Obviously, you're going to be considering factors like where do my providers have licenses? Um, where do I think there's a large population? It could potentially be, are there certain places that have a higher rate of the potential type of clinical service I'm giving? But I want you to start thinking about one more thing. Where does the state have virtual first friendly policies, Colorado being an example. In Colorado, back in 2015, which then took effect in 2017, we worked on payment parity for video visits. And that is for private insurance companies that are under the rules of Department of Insurance and also Medicaid. So in Colorado, our big, uh, big players here in the non-Medicare space, we would have, of course, the um, United Healthcare. We also have uh, Kaiser Permanente. We have Aetna. We have a variety of pairs, but really we have a few central large pairs, Blue Cross. And most states will see you have a few large pairs and then other smaller pairs that are part of your customer base. So I'd like companies start thinking about also what state benefits you when you start virtual first for your direct-to-consumer model and then being able to flow easier into your payers that are already required by state law to cover virtual first. The reason this can be helpful is because if you go after a state that does not have payment parity policy. Let's, um, we won't call out any particular states, but if you're in a state that doesn't have payment parity, and since COVID, pre-COVID, pre we had about thir 13 states that had payment parity for video visits within Medicaid and the private payer market. Again, when I'm talking private payer, I'm not talking um, Medicare because those are Medicare rules. It is, for example, United Healthcare mandated by Department of Insurance. If a state does not have video visit payment parity, then when you go to contract with those payers, you're actually needing to contract the payment parity for the video visit. So your contracting becomes that more complicated because you're asking for something that the insurance company isn't required by law to give you. But if you come to Colorado as a virtual first company, we have payment parity for Medicaid. We have payment parity for third-party payers that are governed under Department of Insurance. And that means that when you go to get credentialed and then join the network of United Healthcare, that means their non-Medicare insurance programs have to cover your services. So you are coming to be credentialed and put into in-network, but you're not having to do the additional piece of negotiating do you cover video visits? Do you cover virtual care? Because under Colorado state laws, that is already a requirement of actually doing business. Anyone in Colorado who wants to offer virtual care video visits, that's already a part of the network of that pair, the payer must pay them. So I would love companies to start thinking about when they're choosing their geography, why don't we start choosing where you know 
the private payers and Medicaid are required to pay you. Now, some of you might be thinking, but Sam, we want value-based payment. It's better if we're on, you know, whether it's PM, PM, or what's the total cost of what we're doing. Okay, I agree. I think we should all be on value-based payments. But the reality is right now, in the American healthcare system, we are still fee-for-service. And if you are doing direct consumer, you've already determined a business model that allows you to understand what you need to be paid for to get your ROI. You can then understand from there using CPT codes, what the reimbursement for those CPT codes, whether it's Medicaid, your private payers, what their reimbursement rates are to understand if that still allows you to meet your ROI. The other important factor is when you go to become credentialed and in-network with those insurance carriers, you are not having to go through the process. You don't have to justify that they should pay for virtual care. They already are required by the state law to reimburse for video visits. So I really, really would love people to start looking at it more from a standpoint of, do I already have payment parity for video visits? in traditional fee-for-service for my state or state XYZ. And then as a startup, you can actually start targeting, creating your markets, getting your direct-to-consumer, getting your licenses for your providers in the states that are going to be the path of least resistance when it's time for you to approach payers. If you're a startup out there and you're like, I know I want virtual first. I'm trying to decide what markets to go into. I know direct-to-consumer is my path to get in and to get started. I want you to think about one more thing. Which states allow and require payment parity for video visits for private insurance, non-Medicare, and Medicaid? This alone will allow an ease when it's time for you to contract with payers because it doesn't become an issue of Will they pay for video visits? The state law already requires them to pay for video visits. It allows you to come in and contract yourself as one more in-provider network offering your virtual first care. I hope that was helpful. I love Christina's article and really wanted to also give another lens on how do we actually align our businesses in the geographic locations in the states that have virtual first friendly policy. Well, with that, everyone, that's this episode of Sam Talks Telehealth. Excited for everyone to be here today. Don't forget to like and follow the show so that you know what's going on. And of course, for anyone who wants to understand more about virtual first and the states that are pro virtual first, feel free to stop by the website of telehealtheasy.com where you can get directly in touch with me. And of course, LinkedIn and Twitter, I'm always up for a chat. See you next time on Sam Talks Telehealth.